0: Hey everyone, this is Jim Rohnert, Deacon at Forefront Church, and joining me for this interview is executive producer Mackenzie Gomez as we tag team what may be one of the most important interviews I have ever been a part of. Today we talk to Mark Charles, he is a dual citizen of the United States and the Navajo Nation, he's a pastor, he's a speaker, and he is an author of the book Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. Now this is a long interview, it clocks in at well over an hour, but it's also kind of a short interview in in the sense of, y'all, we ask him three, maybe four questions, and the rest of the time we just sit and we listen to him. We listen to his story. We listen to his experiences. We listen to him break down the myths of America being founded as a country, which is um, for everyone or the white evangelical church being accepting of everyone. Uh, Most edifying to me was just this idea that he talks about of lamentation, of lament and what that means for the church and how it goes well beyond just grieving and just apologizing and what it means to reconcile our past not even reconcile it but to um, bring about conciliation with our past and with um, what historically has been perpetuated uh, 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 to indigenous people and people of color Um, check out the show notes where you can find more information about mark about his stances about more information about him and where you can uh, buy his book unsettling truths, um, but I invite you to join us in this episode to just listen and to really um, learn more about um, our history and how the church can move forward with conciliation uh, and with lament.
1: Well, yeah, so let me go ahead and just introduce myself traditionally. So, yeah, Mark Charles, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, in our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineals a people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. So my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, which is why I say tsin Loosely translated, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother is tohulini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father is also tsin Then my fourth clan, my father's father is tohulini, which is a bitter water clan. Which is one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also want to acknowledge I'm speaking to you today from what's now known as Washington D.C. and these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. And so I want to honor the Piscataway as the indigenous hosts of these lands. I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands, and I want to just publicly state how honored I am to be living on these lands today.
0: Well, thank you, Mark. That's that was a wonderful introduction, and uh, I guess to return it, we are. Um... I, Jim and Mac, who is joining me, we are, I'm in Manhattan, Mac is in Brooklyn, but we are in New York City, so we are recording this from the land of the the Lenape people, which is something that we try and um, make a a note of whenever we start our our Sunday morning service. Um, And I wanted to start with you because I I was, I wanted to speak to you specifically, but then uh, it came more out of this, of, of the book that you wrote, Unsettling Truths. The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. And I want to start there. Specifically, uh, I'm I'm wondering about the impetus that you had uh, behind writing it, because whenever someone puts out um, art like a a book or a movie or something in the public sphere, there is something behind that um, that kind of led you to to want to put this out there. And, and so I, I'm, I'm curious about that. And also if you can talk a little bit about the writing process, because you have a co-author with it as well, um, Sung Chan Ra. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the thought process behind wanting to get this out there and how you two work together to craft it.
1: Yeah, so those are some great questions. Um, the book was a long time coming. I've been learning about and studying about the Doctrine of Discovery. It's well as just the the history of the United States and the church with Native peoples, I've been the pastor of the church of a church um, in Indian country. I have uh, been wrestling with what does it mean to be Native and be Christian, and why is that such a challenging question to ask in the American church? In other words, why can why can white Europeans contextualize their worship for their cultures? But Native peoples cannot contextualize our worship for our cultures. Um, and so I, I've been on that journey for over 20 years now. And it has been a very interesting when I didn't set out to write a book. In fact, I, I told people for many years I wasn't intending to write a book. I didn't necessarily want to go down that road. But as I began um, both living on the reservation and gaining much more experience within our Native communities, as well as learning more about how the church has so intentionally crafted this doctrine of discovery and then used it to justify oppressive, even genocidal behavior against people of color, um, I felt like I had to begin to find a way to articulate it. So I first started doing it by blogging. I began blogging 15 years ago, maybe. And I began just trying to get my thoughts out through I, I would tell people i don't blog what i had for breakfast i tried to blog publishable quality articles so my blog wasn't like a journal it was very much like a an article that i would want to publish a thought i would want to get out i would have it edited i would i would you know make versions of it and i would really put a lot of effort into it and so i wouldn't blog frequently i would blog maybe um seven eight times a year uh, maybe a little bit more occasionally but I, I was very intentional that was kind of my first effort to get my thoughts out into the public sphere and then as i began blogging not only about understanding native culture and reconciling that with my christian faith but as i began blogging about the history and the oppressive history of the church and the nation against uh, native peoples i wrote an article and this was maybe i want to say eight or nine years ago It was one of the first articles I wrote Um, the doctrine of discovery, a buried apology in an empty chair, I think was the name of that article. And I laid out kind of what the doctrine of discovery was and what my vision was to address it, which back then I was calling it a truth commission. And that was the first article I would say, I can't say went viral, but it definitely reached a much broader audience than I had on social media. There are a lot of people who are retweeting it and sharing it and and putting it out there. And so I started getting more speaking requests and I started getting more um, people who are interested in wanting to hear what I was doing. And so I began doing presentations, which led me into more research and even trying to understand how people were hearing what I was saying. And as I started gathering all that content and seeing how other both authors and speakers were presenting it, I, um, it kind of became, I don't know if obvious is the right word to use, but it became very clear that, yeah, we had some information that was valuable and we wanted to get into the public space, but I didn't, I didn't want to go through all the publicity of writing and, you know, all the, all the, um, the administrative stuff of putting together a proposal and trying to find a publisher and so on and so forth and i was doing some work with ccda as well as with uh, uh, with sojourners and uh, my co-author who we've been friends for almost 10 years now um Shan ra and he had just was finishing up his book called a prophetic lament and um he had written the next evangelicalism a few years before that and he would was editing the prophetic his book a prophetic lament and he was basically pointing out how the american church is anemic at lament and i was talking about the doctrine discovery and calling the church to lament oh. and there was maybe a two to three year period maybe a two-year period where he was <laughs> going through the long process of finishing his book it became kind of a joke because it, it took so long, <laughs> but. Um, uh, we were at many same conferences and even on the same stages together, uh, talking, him, talking about his book, me talking about the doctrine of discovery. We learned each other's messages and realized that we were really wrestling with many of the same issues and trying to, to call the church to some of the same responses. And as we kind of grew in our partnership and our friendship, we realized, you know, hey, maybe we we should write a book together. And one time we were together in Chicago where he used to live. He just moved to Southern California. He's now at Fuller. He was at um, North Park Seminary in Chicago. Now he's at Fuller Seminary in, in uh, Pasadena. But uh, we were in Chicago together. And he said, he just took me to his office and we got out a bunch of whiteboards. And he said, let's put together a book proposal. <laughs> And so we, you know, he's published several books on his own. And so he's been through the process. And so we did, we just mapped out kind of an outline of if we were gonna talk about the Dr. Discovery, call the church to a space of lament, how would our outline be? What would our, the thesis of our book be? And what, what would be our proposal? And so we put it together that afternoon and typed it up, had a nice little proposal and uh, shopped it around. We got two bites from two different publishers who were both interested in publishing it. And we decided at the end of the day, because of relationships, we had to go with University Press and uh, sign the contract, I think it was back in 2015. We literally thought it would take a year to write the book. Um, five <laughs> years later, it got published, um, primarily because we continued to research it. Like we, we, I mean, we both had our content. We both knew what we wanted to say, but of course you have to go more in depth for a book than a blog article or even than a lecture. And so it was in adding the little pieces of more in depth that prolonged the the creation of the book. First of all, we didn't even start writing till almost a year after we we signed the contract. And um, just as we were beginning that process, the 2016 election happened mm. and white evangelicals overwhelmingly were responsible for putting Donald Trump and his explicit racist, sexist and white supremacist message into the White House. And so I remember he was Singchan was actually here in the D.C. area soon after the election. Um, I was actually in Chicago the day after the election, but I don't think we met then. We we were here, or maybe we talked about it, but he came here uh to the DC area a few months later and we sat down in the coffee shop and decided to rework our entire thesis. And initially the book was a call to lament. And we changed it at that point to just a flat out rebuke of the church. And so we reframed how we were gonna lay out our arguments and what we were gonna. And so the the call was not only to bring the church to lament, but for the church to know it needed to be rebuked. It, it had to be um, uh, corrected. And so the book turned into a a flat rebuke. And then, I mean, I won't even go into all these stories, but we've told several of them, but just one example, right. Is in, in the book chapters nine and 10, I think it is, we have two chapters on Abraham Lincoln and that, section originally was going to be maybe a page and a half at the end of a chapter on white supremacy and we were writing out this chapter and i had already included my lectures for a number of years now that if you go to the lincoln memorial here in washington dc and you visit the museum at the base of the memorial there is a, a a plaque with a quote by abraham lincoln that says my primary object in the struggle is to save the union if I could save the union without freeing a single slave, I would do it. If I could save by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I also do that. There's a quote at the Lincoln Memorial, literally stating that according to Abraham Lincoln, black lives don't matter. He didn't give a crap about black lives. He was trying to preserve the union. And so I was gonna use that as a kind of the, the ending emphasis, the ending, like you know, piece of that section, that chapter. To say, even Abraham Lincoln, our greatest president, who freed the slaves and all these other things, even he had this white supremacist viewpoint. And so I woke up one morning and I was going to write that into the book, page and a (laughs) half of writing, maybe an hour and a half. So I had to bring my daughters to school at eight. So I woke up at six, sat down by 630. I was going to type it in. Um, Well, that quote came from a, a, a letter Abraham Lincoln wrote in response to Horace Greeley, who was calling for the emancipation of the slaves, which Lincoln promised. And so I thought, well, I should read his letter. So I read his letter. In his letter, he referenced something Lincoln said in his inaugural address. And so I said, well, I should read that part of the inaugural address. So I read the inaugural address. And in the inaugural address, Lincoln quotes something he said from the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And I'm like, crap, because I knew the Lincoln-Douglas debates weren't good, but I didn't know them, like I hadn't read them. So I go back to the Lincoln-Douglas debates and one of the references he's making is from, it's either the August or September debate, I think. And he says, um, he says, I have no intention of making voters um, how does that forget how he says it but he basically says, I have no intention of making voters or jurors of Negroes nor allowing them to hold office nor to enter and marry there is a physical difference between the white and black races which I believe will, will forever forbid the two from living in a place of social and political equality but as long as they must remain together there must be the distinction between superior and inferior and I as much as any other man believe that the superior position belongs to the white race I read that and I just stared at my computer screen and I'm like, holy crap, Abraham Lincoln was a blatant white supremacist. And so I couldn't write that morning, obviously, because whatever I wrote would have just been me screaming. <laughs> and so I, I turned off my computer, I took my daughters to work, and I, um, I went to a coffee shop that, uh, that morning where I usually do some more writing. And I knew I couldn't write that morning either. I had to wait, I had to calm down. And so I did some research actually because I had a question about the war on drugs and when the, the, the emphasis of the war on drugs changed from incarceration to, um, to, uh, to preventative you know, care. And in doing my research I learned that you know when, when it was Nixon but primarily it was link it was um, Reagan and Carter who were initiated the war on drugs and back in the 80s and early 90s it was primarily African Americans and people of color who were dying from drug overdoses and that's when we criminalized drug use and we massively incarcerated massively incarcerated people of color. And at the same time going into the mid to late 90s the uh, white Americans begin dying at increasing rates from drug, opioid drug overdoses. And they caught up to people of color around the late 90s and in early 2000s, they passed them, they surpassed them. And then beginning in 2004, 2005, the percentage of white people dying from drug overdoses skyrocketed just completely surpassed that of people of color. And right, this is as we're changing from when people of color were dying, we were incarcerating them, we criminalized drug use. When white people were dying, we began to treat it like a healthcare crisis Mm -hmm. and develop life-saving techniques for people, which is how we should be treating it. But it wasn't until more white people began dying than people of color that we began to make that change. And then when you combine that with Abraham Lincoln gave us the 13th Amendment, which doesn't actually abolish slavery, Mm -hmm. but keeps slavery legal in prison. And it lays the foundation for mass incarceration. And we use this war on drugs to to incarcerate or to, to basically enslave people of color. We're using it today. So anyway, this whole thing is like I'm beginning to see Abraham Lincoln was a blatant white supremacist. And once that image of my image of him begin to shatter a little bit that allowed me to see that not only was he doing that i remember it was in february i was going to be speaking at the poor people's campaign mm, okay. someone from reverend barber's team yep. they were having an event here in dc and it was on president's day and i was asked to speak i had two minutes and i was gonna i'm like well if i'm here on lincoln's art in you know president's day is kind of around lincoln's birthday and it's in February because of Lincoln. So if I have two, two minutes, I'm going to deconstruct Lincoln. <laughs> and so I thought I was sitting in my, in my den here at the house. And I was not even, I wasn't studying. I wasn't looking up anything. I was pondering what I was going to say, just sitting there. Pondering what I was going to say. And all my life, like I have blamed the long walk, which is the ethnic cleansing of my people, the Navajo people from the Southwest, in the 1860s, I blamed that on an army captain named Kit Carson, who literally went through and burned our crops and destroyed our, our, our communities and imprisoned and dragged our people down to the, the death camp um, in Bosco Dondo. All my life I blamed the long walk on him. And that morning, now that the veil of Abraham Lincoln's true legacy began to be lifted, I realized this was 1863. This is when he was president. And for the first time that morning, I realized it was Abraham Lincoln's policies that were responsible for the ethnic cleansing of my people, as well as the hanging of the Dakota 38, as well as the massacre at Sand Creek in Colorado. And when I looked at a map and compared the sites where he was doing massacres and ethnic cleansing natives and compared that with where the primary routes of the Transcontinental Railway were, I realized he was literally just ethnically cleansing lands to make way for the railway. And so it was. this was maybe a four-month period where I went from Lincoln was one of our greatest presidents with a few human flaws to Abraham Lincoln is a blatant white supremacist and one of the most genocidal presidents in our nation's history. And so what was supposed to be a page and a half of telling this story about the quote at the Lincoln Memorial, turned into two chapters, completely deconstructing both his white supremacist views and how he he actually gave us the constitutional tools we're using today to keep slavery intact in our country, as well as the way he had ethnically cleansed Native peoples to make way for the Country Railway, and so this was just one section right and there were probably this probably happened two or three times throughout the process of writing the book and so that chapter those chapters on Lincoln alone extended the writing of the book by anywhere from six to nine months because not only did it take time to research that and the research is the easiest part the first thing I had to do was I had to just lament it right I had believed something false about one of our national heroes and I had to allow time for that that understanding to kind of shatter in myself. I had to actually lament that, that this person I used to look up to actually was not that person at all. And then I had to get the research to write it. And then, and this is the hardest part of all of my work, is I had to figure out how to write it in a way that people would listen to it. Like Mm -hmm. they would actually be able to hear it and digest it without softening it, right? Without with, without just, you know, turning it into, you know, a, a, a soft piece on, you know, well, it wasn't that bad, but, you know, act, so how do you, how do you say this strongly? How do you lay out these facts, but do it in a way that people can actually hear it and you can actually change some thoughts and some mind views and our minds and some worldviews. So yeah, that probably took nine months. Um, And so that, but that's just one example of how the writing (laughs) of the book, what made the book writing so enjoyable was Sing Chan, there's very few people I would trust to help me write this message. And I wouldn't need to fear that they would soften it. And if you've ever heard Sing Chan Ra speak or you've read his writing, you know that he is just about, he is as bold and as prophetic as I try to be. (laughs) <laughs> and so we actually were a perfect match. I have a much more narrative style of writing. He has a much more academic and research style of writing and things where, where you know, so um, we both are very engaging with our audiences. And so I felt like it was a natural fit. He was, because he's been through this process of writing books so often, he actually edited most of our book even before our editors and our publishers did it. Because of that, you know, Basically, everything we wanted in the book, we got. I, I've spoken to several authors. I remember I spoke to one author just a few months ago, and they asked me to read their, their manuscript. And I said, well, what do you think of this manuscript? And they said, well, it's not the book I wrote. Right? <laughs> the editors changed it. And I know this has happened. This has happened with my blog articles. This has happened with other stuff I produce. I know that happens a lot. But I'm very happy to say that the book that people are reading The book that got published is absolutely the book that Soong Chan and I wrote.
0: Oh, that's wonderful.
1: And that is due to his very excellent job of kind of pre-editing our material. Mm. So when it got to our actual editors, we already had addressed most of the things they might be concerned about. We've worded things as strongly as we wanted to, but did it in a way that was compelling and drew, drew people in. And so, yeah, I mean, things were changed, obviously, and and, and moved around. But we felt at the end of the day that this was the book we were we wrote. And this is the book we wanted to the world to read.
0: Well, that's yeah, that's wonderful. And and I I can confirm for people, yes, it is chapters nine and ten are the two are the two (laughs) chapters on Lincoln. And which which for me, who is, you know, a guy that was raised in a white evangelical suburban environment, were the two most eye-opening chapters because we're taught, you know, not only was Lincoln the great emancipator, but also, yes, the you know, the Puritans came here to escape religious conviction or, or religious persecution and sort of casting them as as victims in the story, that kind of stuff, things that you, that you very much attempt to break down and do break down in this book. Um, and you said so many things in there that I wanna to respond to, but I know that I've only got a certain amount of time with you, so I have to contain myself. Um, but I, I did want to respond to the one thought that you mentioned of this idea that even you yourself, the image of Lincoln was shattered, which means that there's a narrative that was handed to you of Lincoln of these sort of things, and that you yourself had to go on a, on a journey of, of discovery and knowledge. And so I, I want to hear a little bit more about, specifically, you mentioned in the book, and you've mentioned in articles and, and in public uh, the press about making a deliberate decision for you and your family to move from Denver to the Navajo Nation, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your thought process there, and just kind of what you what ultimately led you to decide that this is something that you feel that you felt you needed to do.
1: Yeah, so I grew up. I was born in what I would call a Dutch ghetto, just off the Navajo Nation, um, and uh, I grew up there. There was it was a it was a, a ministry a mission of the CRC Church, and it was it was uh, located. Um, near Gallup, New Mexico. My Navajo grandparents, my father's parents were working as translators for the missionaries. And my mother was a nurse um, who had been raised in the CRC and was actually on her way to Africa to be a missionary nurse. And she was doing some training um, and a, a year or so at Rehoboth hospital, our clinic at that point in New Mexico. And so my father was there, my mom came there and they met and she never left. Um, they got married. And so I was raised in this Dutch ghetto. The, when the missionaries from the CRC came in the early 1900s, they started a mission school, which was a boarding school, right? And in the true legacy of the boarding school tradition, which was to kill the Indian to save the man, it was forced assimilation for native peoples. And the CRC ran a boarding school. It operated as a boarding school for nearly 80 years. When I was there, um, I graduated in '89. It was transitioning from a boarding school to a to a day school, and so there were some students. There was boarding school students, others who were there state school students, um, and frequently our experiences were vastly different. But uh, but so I had been raised in that context. So I, my faith that I was given was largely white evangelical because it was the CRC church. Even my grandparents who were converted in the, in the boarding schools, the faith that they were given and the faith they accepted was an assimilated faith, a faith that said, I give up my pagan evil Navajo ways and I embrace the Easter bunny and Santa Claus and Western culture and, mm-hmm. and religion. And so they didn't teach my father the language. They didn't teach my father the the culture or the religion. And so I didn't know that growing up. Um, But uh, when I was, it was in college, through my work, I was involved with InterVarsity in college, where I would say I really began to own my faith. But again, it was a very white evangelical faith um, through this this student ministry known as InterVarsity. Um, And then after I graduated from college, I moved back to the Southwest. And I was actually working with a native ministry um, started by a dear friend of our family. His name is Tony Begay. He's, um, he, I think he still lives in Albuquerque but he's retired now, but he um, had a a mission, um, a ministry called Southwest Campus Christian Fellowship at UNM and Sippy, two schools in Albuquerque. And I went on staff with him working with native students in those two campuses. And eventually I moved back. moved around, got married, moved back to Gallup, and I began preaching in our churches on the reservation. I wasn't an ordained minister, but I I had through the CRC what was called a license to exhort which is not nearly as exciting as it sounds. It sounds like something James Bond would have, or at least <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's a fascinating phrase.
1: <laughs> yeah, a, a light, a, and they're very clear, right? The CRC is very clear. You can exhort, you can't preach. Um, besides the spelling, I still don't know the difference, but um, I, whatever, call it what you want. I'm gonna do what looks a lot like preaching, but you can call it whatever you want. I, I don't really care. Um, and so, uh, so I was exhorting on the churches around the reservation. And one of the churches that heard me exhort was actually up in Denver called the Christian Indian Center. And they asked me to come and uh, pastor their church again because I wasn't ordained, I couldn't pastor. So I was an elder at another church, on loan to this church as a teaching elder, blah, 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 blah. I pastored the church in Denver for two years called the Christian Indian Center. And then my first council meeting with them, they said to me, our last pastor introduced us to the idea of contextualizing worship. And we want you to lead us into that. I had no clue what they were talking about. I, I didn't, I've never heard that term before. They, they got me connected with a group called the World Christian Gathering on Indigenous Peoples. And i met with literally indigenous Christians from all over the world for about seven or eight years. Who were in the active process of decolonizing their faith and i i traveled i was in i was in siberia i was in israel i was in hawaii i was in um uh with the Sami people up in sweden we were in new zealand all over the the globe kind of learning from and and experiencing the stories and hearing the stories of these indigenous christians who are decolonizing their faith and so we were After the first conference, that first year I was in Denver, this is 2001, 2002, um, we began the process of kind of doing that within our native church in Denver. But it quickly became clear because I had been raised in this Dutch ghetto because most of my work was in the white evangelical church because I didn't speak my language and had never lived on our reservation, there was only so far I could lead the church in this process.
2: Mm.
1: And so my wife and I decided together that if we really wanted to walk into that type of ministry, we had to be back on the reservation. And so we made the decision with the blessing of the church after two years to move back to the Navajo Nation. We didn't wanna go as a missionary we didn't want to go with funding and with a support team and with a with an exit strategy and all this other stuff or any of the safety nets we give our missionaries today. We wanted just to go. And so some members of our church actually had a hogan in a sheep camp on a sheep camp in the middle of the reservation. It's where the, the wife had grown up. It's where her family lived when she was in boarding school. It was six miles off the nearest paved road on a dirt road. It was a one-room hogan, no running water, no electricity. That whole area at that point had no infrastructure. And, uh, And so it seemed ideal for me, for us, my family and I, to experience a very traditional life. And so we moved there. And we lived on that hogan for three years, hauling water, living by candlelight trying to understand what it meant to be there. i That's when I started blogging was when we were living there because I was trying to make sense of not only what I was experiencing, but what it was doing to me and the way it was affecting me. And I have, we don't have time to go into all this today, but I have a lot of articles. If you go back to my blog, Wireless Hogan, our reflections from the Hogan um, on my blog spot, wirelesshogan.blogspot.com and look at my early blogs um, that you will see some of the stuff I was really trying to wrestle with and really trying to engage with um, back in those years. And so um, that's what moved us back there, was a desire not to study my people, but to live the life that most of my people had grown up living. And so we, we ended up staying, we lived in that Hogan for three years. We moved to another community after our, our second child was born, we moved there with our son. Um, and then when our, our, our second child was born, a few weeks later, we moved into what's called Fort Defiant, which is right near Window Rock, the capital of the Navajo Nation. We lived there for eight years. So we are on the reservation for a total of 11 years. Our kids went to um, a Navajo immersion school there where they were taught the language and the culture. So my son speaks better Navajo than I do because he went through six years of this immersion school. <laughs> Um and so it was a, it was an invaluable experience. It was a challenging one, a difficult one. But as far as shaping me for the work I'm doing, as far as giving me integrity for the message I'm trying to speak, as far as giving me um, not only insight, but experience of what does it mean to live on in a native reservation, And try to make sense of the world that's around you. Um, You know, it was it it, all those things happened while we were living there. Um, One of the the biggest things that came out of that is, and I'll share this just quickly, is we move there ready to live off the grid, prepared to haul our water, live by candlelight. What was actually the hardest thing about living there? was it felt like we dropped off the face of the earth. We quickly learned that the only group of non-natives who go to Indian reservations are those who come to give you charity or take your picture. Mm -hmm. And often they're the same people, they're the missionary teams that come there, right? Wow. No one comes just to get to know you as a person, no one. And as we're experiencing this marginalization, we could count on one hand the number of people who came to visit us those first two and a half to three years who weren't immediate family or very close friends. We could count on one hand the number of people who came to actually see us as people. Um, And so as I'm wrestling through that and realizing I'm actually becoming quite insecure in who I was, as I tried to process that with my non-Native friends, I could feel myself becoming very angry actually in the dialogues I was having with them and I'd have to hang up the phone or just bite my tongue. So I wouldn't start yelling at my friends. And so I began to kind of disconnect emotionally. I began to talk about what I was experiencing and what I was observing, what I was learning. Like I read in the newspaper. And that allowed me to dialogue about it longer, but it, it actually triggered my friends more. And after a while, they would become defensive. Well, we didn't do that to you. It wasn't our families who did those things. And soon they would want to hang up the phones. And I didn't know how to have a dialogue where I could be honest about what I was experiencing and feeling, yet draw them into the conversation. And one day I was writing a letter to them. This was maybe the 10th time to try to get them to understand how it felt. And I said, I said, being native and living on an Indian reservation in the middle of this country, it feels like our native communities are this old grandmother who has a very large and very beautiful house. And years ago, some people came and they violently locked us upstairs in the bedroom of this house. And now they're they're sitting in our house. They're eating our food. They're they're, They're sitting on our furniture. They're having a party in our house. They've since opened the door. But it's much later, we're tired, we're old, we're weak, we're sick, so we can't or we don't come out. But the thing that hurts us the most and that causes us the most pain is that virtually nobody at this party ever comes upstairs and seeks out the grandmother in the bedroom, sits down next to her on the bed, takes her hand and just simply says, thank you. Thank you for letting us be in your house. And I wrote that and I'm like, that's what I'm feeling. I shared that with the people we were living around, and many of them said, You're hitting the nail on the head. That that that's really hitting at the heart of what it feels like to live here. And I shared it with non-natives. And instead of getting defensive, they would come up and say, How do we say thank you?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How do we express gratitude towards the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island? So now we're having a very different conversation. We're no longer talking about victim and oppressor. We're talking about what I think is the the heart of the problem, which is we have a reversal of roles. We literally have a nation of 300 plus million, essentially undocumented immigrants. Most of them from Europe. People who have never asked for, nor been given permission by indigenous peoples to be here. Every treaty they've made with us, they've broken. And they run around acting like they own the place meanwhile we have six million approximately native peoples indigenous peoples who've been pushed aside to marginalize scraps of land on our reservations and we're being treated as unwanted guests in someone else's house so there's a, a complete reversal of roles and if we don't address that If the 300 plus million don't understand or don't grow in their understanding that in some very real and practical ways, they are guests in someone else's house. And if our native peoples don't understand and step into the fact, the role that we are the host people of these lands, that's how we have to correct these roles. And so that's a lot of what the bulk of my work is, is how do we, Decenter white Americans and teach a proper role for, for not only them, but for all the 300 plus million undocumented immigrants who are here? And how do we empower Native peoples to step in and to our, our role as the hosts of the land? And then how do we acknowledge people like the African American community who are fit in either of those camps? Right? And again, they didn't immigrate here. They were kidnapped, brought here, and then enslaved. And so we really have three groups of people here. We have the indigenous peoples. We have everyone else who migrated or immigrated here. And then we have the African-American community who were brought here against their will and enslaved and forced to build this area up. And those are kind of the three, the three demographics that when we look at who we are as a nation, those are three of the major identities we have to deal with. And then of course, within that, we have to deal with race and and white and black, native and and other races. So anyway, that that period on the reservation was, (laughs) and I've used that metaphor Mm -hmm. around the globe to try to initiate dialogue between indigenous peoples and their colonizers. I've shared this as I've traveled around the world and it's one of the best tools I've been able to develop to kind of start that dialogue or frame the conversation differently than it's currently being framed.
2: Wow. Yeah. And that metaphor is so beautiful and, and something that I really admire on of how you're speaking. And, um, you said this about your book and I'm noticing a similar theme in how you're talking about how you've just talked to your friends when you were on, um, the Navajo land and reservation of not softening the message, yeah, and that is such a hard thing to do. I, I just, just from my own personal experience as as a Mexican woman and um, dealing with race and reconciliation, if you even want to call it that, and talking to white folks in our congregation or just white friends of mine, it's so hard not to get angry or yeah. to experience your anger and then reframe it in a way that isn't softening it to still get the message across yeah. that is so challenging to do and it it um i just want to say it 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 reminds me of something that we say at forefront when we're talking about our sermons is are we trying to comfort the afflicted or afflict the comfortable or both and how do you do that without softening the message and um, scaring people off, essentially? <laughs> and so I, I feel that similar theme in, in what you're saying and um, you do it so beautifully.
1: The, the biggest piece of that came, and it, in our book, we have two a chapter and a half on trauma. And I talk a lot about, and, and people are very aware of what's called PTSD or post-traumatic stress and um, how that afflicts people who've experienced horrifying events. There's also an understanding of a complex PTSD. So a PTSD typically comes from a single horrifying event, an assault, an accident, a battle. Um, Complex PTSD comes from a series of horrifying events. So if you get PTSD from a single assault, you can get complex PTSD from living in an abusive relationship. You can get PTSD from being in a battle. You can get complex PTSD from living in a war zone. And psychologists have shown that you can, um, that complex PTSD they've observed, it gets passed down from one generation to the next. You see the symptoms of it in the children and grandchildren of the people who've experienced a complex PTSD. They don't know quite how it happens, but it has been observed um, and recorded as that. And then there's the understanding of historical trauma which is not an individual diagnosis, but it's how psychologists understand um, the dissatisfaction in a broad community. And um, they see it in in Native American communities after the boarding schools, which is where it was first identified. They also see it in African American communities after Jim Crow and segregation and slavery. They see it in Jewish communities after the Holocaust. They see it in Japanese American communities after internment camps. Um, where you have a large group of people who've experienced a similar complex PTSD who are now under what they would call a a historical trauma um, that's afflicting them. And so understanding those traumas help prepare me for the work I'm doing within communities of color. But one of the challenges is is that as I was out speaking about this and as I was out lecturing and and writing, I would typically after my lectures, I would have two lines of people in front of me, a line of people of color and they were excited, right? Everything they were told was a conspiracy theory, I've just proven to them. And they're like, oh my gosh, I feel so empowered by what you've said. And then I would have a line of white people and their faces were like a sheet. And they would say the exact same thing I had no idea our history was that bad. How do I fix it? Those were the two things they said over and over and over again. And I I said to some of my colleagues, because I share in the the book, I was involved in a car accident when I was in high school where I was a driver of a car and we had an accident and my brother died. And I realized that I was seeing in their faces the exact same thing I was feeling when I was dealing with a car accident. And I, I, I called it a trauma, but I, when I was observing it, I called it a trauma, but I didn't have a place to put it. I didn't know what kind of trauma it was. And I actually met with some friends and some colleagues in the psych field to kind of talk about this. And they were very clear, like, this is not, you're not, you know, there's no diagnosis. There's no trauma about from, from the, the oppressor, um, but I, I was adamant. I'm like, I'm observing some type of trauma. So I actually met with one of my colleagues, one of my friends for a, a day. We spent 24 hours together, read research, looked up things, talked on calls with people. Were, I was explaining what I was seeing. At the end of the time, he said, you've convinced me you're observing trauma, but I have no placeholder for it. I don't know what you would call it. And then I found some research by a psychologist named Rachel McNair, who wrote a book called PITS, Perpetration Induced Traumatic Stress, where she identifies that um, people who perpetrate violence also experience trauma. Um, it, it doesn't it's not the victim of the horrifying event, but it's the perpetrator of it she calls it the psychology of killing. If, if your government or your society gives you a license to kill, what does that do to you psychologically? And once I found her research, and I already had the, 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 the thread of PTSD, complex PTSD, historical trauma. And I, I was telling people I'm observing something like historical trauma, or at least a complex PTSD in my white audiences, but I didn't know what to call it. Once I had her research on pits, I was able to make the hypothesis of, well, if PTSD has a multi-generational communal manifestation, at a complex level that we call historical trauma, it would make sense to me that pits would also have a multi-generational communal manifestation at a complex level that would be afflicting white Americans. And so, one of the most strategic turns in my work is when I began actively preparing my lectures and because pre- I always prepare for my audiences. Who's in the room? Who am I talking to? How do I need to talk to them? And once I began preparing for white audiences as another group of traumatized people, I realized I was much more effective at preventing them from A, walking out of the room and B, from standing up in the middle of my lectures and calling me a liar, um, which they would do um, regularly. And so so understanding that they are experiencing a trauma as they're getting exposed to the history that they are standing on, that they perpetrated, their ancestors perpetrated. And this is, this is creating, now I have to be very clear, they're not victims of trauma, right? They're not, this, they're not being victimized by this, but they're experiencing this history as trauma. And if I account for that, I'm actually able to get through my lectures much more frequently and prevent them from distracting or even derailing the things that we're trying to speak about or talk about. And so I've, I've incorporated not only that teaching into my lectures and it's a, like I said, it's like a chapter and a half in our book, but I literally I interact with white people as another group of traumatized people. and wow. it's an incredibly effective tool.
0: <laughs> well, that is so I mean even even having read the book and here and, and reading about that it's still like it's still such an amazing concept and approach and so i i love that and i i know that you that you are on a time crunch and so you have to get going soon so i don't want to hold you up yeah about like two
1: more minutes if we want to go a little bit longer we can that's
0: fine I, yeah because i there i have so many questions but i, I mean i've also <laughs> just been so fascinated just sitting here and listening to you talk and, and i i know there is one question i i do still want to get to which i think for the purposes of this podcast for this church for people listening is one of the most important ones is just what does lamentation look like for the church. I wanna read this quote that you have in your book and you you touched on this a little bit. Saying thank you acknowledges that the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island are the hosts of this land. Saying thank you is not the end, but merely a step into the beginning. And I said at the top of this podcast, we say this at the beginning of church every Sunday is that we acknowledge we are broadcasting, we are serving church from the land of of the Lenape people but Mac and I have even had conversations as like, but that doesn't seem like it's enough. What what more can we do? What does lamentation for the church look like to further this process of conciliation? I won't call it reconciliation, but conciliation.
1: Yeah. So I think the first thing we have to do about lamentations is identify what it's not. Lamentations is not a turning away from, it's not a repentance. And it's not a reconciliation, right? That's not what lament is. Lament, I would define as sitting in the, in, the, in the mess. It's sitting in the pit and allowing yourself to comprehend how much of a mess it is. And so when you look in the scriptures, when the people of God lament, right? They're not lamenting from a safe space. They're not even lamenting as repentance. Maybe they've stopped moving in an oppressive way, but they haven't turned yet, right? They, they're, they're, they're sitting in a, in a place of lament. They're, you, you hear about the weeping and the, the, you know, the, the, all the, the things they're doing to emotionally express what they're feeling, but they're not fixing anything yet. They haven't turned from anything yet. They're, they're literally sitting in a space of lament. I think Nehemiah is a great story of lament, where, where when he sees the wall broken down of the temple, right, or, or the city, he goes into a space of lament and he goes through several stages of that lament. Um, and even in his prayer, there's different stages of his prayer and lament. And one of the, I would say the key component of lament is staying in that position long enough for God to show up. Throughout the scriptures, when the people of God lament, God always shows up. He doesn't come quickly. Actually, he lets people stay in that place of lament longer than they feel comfortable. But God always shows up. And when God shows up, God usually presents another option, another, another path that is not only different than what they expected, but often deeper than what they expected. And so, as Seungshan points out so vividly in his book, the American church is anemic at lament. I forget the stats, but in his book, he has, he has actually, he went through the, the song list list of the, whatever the official song list of all the churches the kind of the copyright song list that you get of who's playing what songs on what sundays and blah 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 and he looked at what song can even remotely in some semblance of a way be associated with lament and what and he was very generous with what songs he would consider a lament And what songs are about triumphalism and everything else. And and the the amount of songs we sing on any given Sunday that are associated with lament, even just remotely are like a very small percentage of everything that's coming out of our lips. And one of the things I point out is it's almost impossible to lament when you believe in your own exceptionalism, right? You, You can't lament and, and maintain an air of exceptionalism. And so the church is anemic at lament. Even on Good Friday, right? You can't even have a Good Friday service without telling yourself. And for Good Friday should be the ultimate day of lament, right? We killed Christ. And he doesn't rise until Sunday, right? So we have Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday till Sunday morning, to be in lament. And we can't even do that, right? We have to leave the service by saying, Well, Friday's happened, but Sunday's coming, right? We have to, we, we can't even, and no one knows what to do with Saturday. I remember I wrote a blog post about Saturday. I'm like, could you imagine how horrible the disciples must have felt on Saturday?
2: Yeah. they so had true. no hope.
1: They mm-hmm. had no hope that Jesus was gonna come back. They saw him die, they knew they abandoned him. They had no hope or expectation that he was going to come back. They must have felt like crap. We never talk. We, I mean, I know there's some symbolism for it, but we never talk about it as a church. And, and so if we can't even lament from Friday to Sunday over an injustice that happened, and we know the ending to it from 2,000 years ago, what hope do we have of lamenting current injustices for more than, again, as Soongshan points out, one song in a service, right? And, and so one of the things that I, I encourage people to do is to view lament not as a period or as, a, as a, anything, a time, but to view it as a season. And I chose the word season very specifically because it's God who ultimately changes the seasons. The processes and systems God's put in place are what changes the seasons. God has control of the seasons. And so I tell people, let's lament for a season, not for a service, not for a period, not for a day, not for a week, not even for a month. Let's lament for, for a season. And let's stay long enough for God to show up. The problem is, is because we flee lament like it's the plague, right? We never interact with God in lament. And so there's a whole side of God's character we actually never get to see. We never get to understand. We never get to interact with. And so my goal for the church is, yeah, let's lament long enough to actually meet God there. This is one of the reasons why the writing of the book took so long, because before I could even write half the time, I had to sit and lament. I had to lament that I believed the mythology of Abraham Lincoln. I had to lament when we, the whole, another, another, you know, section of the book that was completely changed was the first four chapters where we, we talk about how the church got from the writing, the teachings of Jesus to the doctrine of discovery. And there's a whole two chapters on Eusebius and, deconstructing augustine and constantine and and aquinas and i had to lament that to to see how these heroes people we would call heroes of our faith were actually creating a heresy that not only destroyed the church but led to untold violence and oppression against people of color and non-christians all over the world and And so before I could write these things, after researching them and finding them, I'm like, I had to lament them. So I could even get to a space where I could talk about them. And oftentimes that lament would last months at a time. And I I don't see lament as I'm sitting there crying my eyes out every day, like that's not lament. Lament for me, I mean, it could be, there's definitely a mourning process. Um, so it's not that you can't cry, but it's, it's not, I've never experienced it where I I can't, you know, I'm just teary-eyed all the time. It's definitely a mourning process. It's definitely a, a a process to express brokenness and and grief and sadness. But for me, lament is much more about fighting the urge to fix it immediately and actually challenging myself to look closer at the brokenness, you know, because if we don't look closely at what's broken, we're not going to know what to fix. If we try if you come across a problem and you, in the first five minutes of seeing the problem, you already have a solution to fix it. There's a very good chance you don't understand the problem well enough to know how to fix it. And so for me, much of my process of lament is fighting my own urges to fix it or to just shut the door and not look at it anymore. Um, but to stay in this place of, yeah, this is grieving me, and I'm gonna stay here so I can understand how extremely broken this is. So that when I come across a solution or God presents a solution, I'm much more able to address it and, and deal with it. Um, and so that and that's the thing that the church, again, the line of white people after my lectures, their two questions, their two statements was, I had no idea it was that bad. Quick. Tell me how to fix it. Right. That That's just, I don't want to see this anymore. I don't want to deal with it. Let me fix it. What can I do? What can I say? I would have a lot of people who would literally after these lectures or even during the Q and a sometimes middle of the lecture, they would want to apologize and I I remember there was this one time where I was, it was during the Q&A, during my lecture, I could tell there was this young white man who's sitting near the front row and he was very distraught by my lecture. He was hearing me and he was engaging with it, but it was really distressing him. I could see it on his face, which is good. It's good that this distresses people. And then when when the Q&A time came, he was one of the first people to raise his hand. And when I called on him, He was kind of trying to find his thought process. And he was kind of meandering around verbally for a little while. And after about 30 seconds, I realized he was going to apologize to me. And I said to him, I said, sir, I need to stop you. I said, let me tell you what's going on for you right now. I said, you are a white American and um, you have a highly individualistic worldview. And you just heard this incredibly, oppressive, violent, and systemic history, but you're viewing it through an individual worldview. And so at the moment you have literally 2,000 or 1,400 years of violence and oppressive history, and it's bearing down on your shoulders. And the only thing you can think of is how am I possibly gonna go to sleep tonight? Because you don't know what to do. And so you want to apologize to me publicly. I'm a native man, I'm a Christian, we're in a public setting, I have to forgive you. Mm. So that will allow you to go home tonight and say, okay, I heard this horrible history, I stood up, I publicly apologized, I was forgiven by a native man, so now I can go to sleep tonight. (laughs) I said, the problem is, is you're gonna get in your car or on a plane or go back to your home in the suburbs somewhere, and you get to enjoy the fruits of this oppressive history, and I'm going to get on a plane and go back to the reservation and be among my people. And I have to, uh, Russell, deal with the dregs of this oppressive history. And nothing will have changed. I said, so I don't want you to apologize. First of all, I'm not mad at you. This is not an individual injustice that I'm pointing out. I'm not mad at you. This is a systemic problem. And I want you to get to the point where you're willing to make systemic changes and you're not willing to do that right now. I mean, I didn't say it that far to them, but I'm like, but this is what I'm thinking. Like you're, you know, after my lectures, if I took it, if I, if I asked for donations after my lectures, I'd make a ton of money, but I don't want people to just give me some money. I want to have a conversation about land titles. I want to deal with centuries of genocide and ethnic cleansing and white supremacy. And People might feel some sense of remorse after my lectures, but I promise you they are not willing to go into a dialogue about land titles. And so I have to, this is again, this is, and I would now say primarily the responses I'm getting immediately after the lecture is rooted in trauma. They are hearing something they didn't know was there. their their mouths are bitter from the adrenaline, they're in a fight or flight mode, they just wanna shut the door and slam it shut and fix it. They're willing to do something, but not something very deep. And so again, this is where lament is so helpful because I can just tell people, no, where you're sitting is actually a very good place to be. Don't harm yourself, don't harm others, but stay in this place as you are able and wait for god to meet you there yeah this history sucks it's horrible it's it's mind boggling oppressive let's think about that for a moment and you know, one of so I, when I speak at conferences, I always stay more than one day if I can. And, you know, because I know if I lecture on the first day, I will immediately be engaged in a bunch of trauma induced questioning, which is not bad, but just reaction questions and, and people wanting a quick solution or trying to grapple with what I said to them. If I stay a second day after they've, gone to bed and woke up and had a few REM cycles and the brain sorted out a few things more. We'll have a bit more of an in-depth dialogue the next morning or the following day. But the best conversations I'm gonna have are gonna happen five to six months later when I run into the same people at another conference or at another, even randomly on the street and they'll come up and say, Mr. Charles, you said something five months ago. I haven't been able to put it down. I'm seeing it everywhere. I'm ready to have a conversation about what do we do to fix this. And those are the conversations I live for because those are the conversations that are gonna bring real change. And and that's where, yeah, that's where understanding what's going on even psychologically for my white audiences has been so helpful to understand that. Yeah, most of what I'm seeing in in the first 24 hours after they hear this is almost entirely motivated by trauma denial self-protection um it's not even if they have good intentions they're they're not at a place especially immediately to really wrestle with what do we do about this
0: wow Wow. i (laughs) i I don't know i don't know what else really there is to say after that And, and i know you've uh got to head out. So I I guess the the one final thing I just wanted to to extend to you is is my sincerest thanks for you I mean giving your time today for you sharing your thoughts for writing this book. I mean this is a yeah, it's a it's I think this book and this conversation is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable and I think that's important. So, um no. Yes.
2: This has left me buzzing with inspiration and thoughts. It makes me want to go write. I was uh, telling Jim, this makes me want to go write a sermon. <laughs> um, but it's it's so fascinating. And, and the last thing that you said really put it into perspective for me of the position of the church of immediately after a sermon is not where the change really happens. It's the five, six months from then where the conversation continues and really, really evolves into a position of, okay, now what do we do about this? Yeah. And I really appreciate you for putting that into perspective for us today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That That's one of the more valuable things I've learned over the past two decades is if I want real change and right. And this is, this is why running for president in twenty 2020 was such a a fascinating endeavor. This is why the things I'm trying to do and the change I'm trying to enact, um, understanding that, yeah, we have to, I mean, I'll just, I'll give a very quick example. (laughs) We start the book with me introducing myself and talking for three or four pages about watching the sunrise. And one of the things I say in there is It's one thing when you watch the sunrise on Easter morning or when you have an early flight. It's beautiful. You'll pause and take a picture and, you know, it will inspire you. But when I moved back to the reservation and I followed the tradition of my people and I started rising early and going to the east every morning and watching the sun come up and greeting with my prayers. And I did that five or six times a week day after day, week after week, month after month, eventually year after year. We did it for the whole 11 years I was on the reservation. I realized God was doing something deeper in me. And one of the things that you realize when you watch the seasons come and go, the birds migrate and, and the grass fall and, and, and grow and you see the, the, the rains and the snows and all these things change over and over again. The thing that hits hardest after months and even after years is that you can't control this. This cycle is going on. This thing is happening and you can't control it. Everything about Western culture is about controlling things and buying insurance for the things we can't. And, and so watching the sunrise helps me understand, ultimately I'm not in control. And when you can find peace, in the fact that you're not in control, it's even better because most, because we're so used to having control or fighting for control. We are often anxious when we're not in control, but if we can learn to meet God and find peace in this place that we're not in control, that's one of the best places to be. And so it's not a coincidence that after I published this book and the book has been selling well and it's getting good feedback and comment, but it hasn't started the national dialogue I'm hoping for after running for president and trying to engage politically in this conversation at a national level, it has not started the conversation I was hoping for. It is not a coincidence that one of the first things I begin doing after The campaign was over. Is I found a place here in DC down by the Potomac River where I go several times a week to to watch the sunrise. And I live stream the sunrises. I don't preach. I don't have an agenda. Well, I do have an agenda, but I'm not there to, it's not a political agenda. (laughs) I, I I most half the time I'm in silence. The other half, I'm literally offering a prayer of gratitude to creator for the world that we're living in. Sometimes I'm praying for specific needs, both locally, nationally, even globally. But what I'm doing is I'm trying to train, disciple, expose our nation to getting used to sitting in this place where we can recognize we're not in control because where I'm trying to lead our nation, where I'm trying to lead the church, the conversation I'm trying to initiate, we can't control that conversation. We're trying to do something unprecedented. That's never happened in this country, which is to build a nation where we, the people truly means all the people. We're trying to get the church to lay down its efforts and attempts to control its environment. And I've realized, okay, if I did these two very intentional things, I published this book and I ran this campaign and the message I got back was from the, both the church and the nation is we're not ready for that conversation. I am now live streaming the sunrise and inviting the nation, inviting the church to sit with me for a few mornings a week and watch the sunrise. And then we'll try and initiate the conversation again and see if we can move it further down the road. So yeah, there's you know that I, I'm being very strategic, and it may sound flippant, it may sound like, well, that's high hopes. It is, but I know this is one of the things. I would not be teaching the things I'm teaching today. I would not be saying the things I'm saying today. I would not be having the message I have today had I not been watching the sunrise on a regular basis for 11 years on the reservation. And so if that's part of the prep that's needed to have this dialogue, I'm doing what I can to help those around me watch the sunrise. So we'll see what happens.
0: That's a that's a wonderful place to, to wrap this up. So that's that's great, Mark. Thank you again so much for your time today for letting us be a part of this conversation. And I'm 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 yeah, like Mac, I'm just like, well, let's figure out ways that our church can be part of this conversation and and, and to to further it. So thank you so much for for your time today and for everything. I really, really appreciate you sharing today.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's great to be with you. If you want to follow me on on social media, I'm Wireless Hogan almost everywhere uh, on Instagram and Twitter. I'm even on TikTok, not as much, but somewhat. <laughs> um, I'm trying, and uh, I I have a I have a verified account on Facebook, Mark Charles Wireless Hogan. So you'll see a verified account there. Um, also on YouTube, I live stream on those pretty regularly. I'm actually going through. A book study of the book right now on selling truths and we're just finished chapter 10 last week we're going to do um as we go into august we're going to start uh, chapter 11 but that's actually archived on my youtube channel and if people want to buy a copy of the book they can order that from my website um at wirelesshogan.com and they can order a fine copy of the book so uh, we have those available too but it's been a, a great pleasure to be with you today thank you for this engage in conversation and I look forward to seeing where the conversation goes from here.